You don't have to solve it. You don't have to be the solution. The key is that you cared, you list, you asked, you listened, you cared, and you're offering some kind of help and support. That's what compassion in action looks like. And when you start doing this regularly, you transform your team. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from servant leaders working to normalize the mental health conversation and increase empathy in the workforce. I'm your host, Adam Baru. Burnout, mental health, productivity, and compassion. These are issues we discuss regularly on this show. Today's guest, Jason Loritzen, is a public speaker, author, and trainer that relates his own experiences with these topics as he works with companies to help them become more compassionate and connected to their workforce. Hey, Jason, welcome to The Change. Hey, Adam, how are you? Doing well. Um, I want to start off with some condolences for your grandma. I just mm. read that she had passed away. So, you know, read a couple uh comments that you made about her on your blog. Um, and I, I'd like to start by reading some, if I may, and just, you know, have, have you share a couple stories and, and how she inspired and, and influenced who you are today. Sure. So just quoting you here, her legacy reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from the great Maya Angelou. People will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. To know my grandma was to know what it meant to feel loved. I cannot imagine a better legacy or a more powerful lesson to leave behind. So, yeah, share a little bit about your grandparents. And I know you kind of wrote about them also in a separate blog. So, yeah, just kind of share, you know, what it was like having having these grandparents and how they shaped and informed who you are today. You know, it's it was such a gift to to have them. And, and you know. I think most people speak fondly of their grandparents. I think um, mine were particularly uh, unique, at least from my perspective, just because when I when I think about how I have learned, hopefully, or I'm still aspiring to learn to show up in the world with greater kindness and less judgment, and you know, not not harboring resentments and all the things that I. I really aspire to like my grandparents were doing it my whole life. Like I was watching it and experiencing it. And I remember my, my grandpa, um, actually a number of years ago, my, my grandmother, uh, because my grandpa was such a storyteller and he'd had all these interesting, uh, experiences in, in his life. She asked mm -hmm. my mom and I, if we could, shoot some video of grandpa sharing some of the stories so that we would have those as a family legacy. Mm -hmm. And while we were in the process of shooting this, there was, I asked him and I don't even remember what the question was, but it, he, he went back, it, it prompted him to talk about how when he was younger, he had watched his, his, his father and his, and his father's brothers, like they would get into arguments. They would get in these fights and then they wouldn't <laughs> speak for months. Like they would get, you wow. know, they, that he's like, and he's like, I just remember thinking that is so stupid. Like that was so stupid. And I just decided I was never going to do that. And I mean that, you know, it was just like, it was sort of that simple. Like I'm not going to, mm -hmm. it's not worth it. They prioritized relationships. They prioritized care you know, my, my grandma, probably one of my favorite things during the pandemic was, you know, I'd Skype with my grandma, my 91 year old grandma, we'd get on Skype mm -hmm. and she's on her tablet. I'm looking sort of upper nose or whatever. I just like, I don't, <laughs> grandma, you hold it however you want it's on your lap. Um, but we would have these just long conversations and we tried to we tried to figure out some games to we could play like mm -hmm. the kids with grandma whatever but and it didn't matter if it worked it didn't matter how long you had like grandma was just genuinely always happy and interested to be with you um in fact when i was i had to as we were rolling into the funeral on monday i asked my son who's 12 the youngest i said i'm like or I asked actually all my kids, I asked, you know, what memories do you have of grandma? And mm -hmm. 
their great grandma, of course. And uh, my son thought for a second. He said, you know what? He said, I don't know. He said, I don't know. He said, I just like to talk with her. She was so nice. Mm. You know, and a 12 year old kid, it was just kind of, and that was her gift is she was so interested in everyone she met that she, and she would, she would, you felt seen, you felt like she was really interested in you and your experience mm-hmm. or whatever. It was just, it was, uh, she was, they were both, um, amazing people. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful to have had the opportunity to, to learn from them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think you and I are probably close to the same age and, and all of my grandparents have, have passed away. My, my grandmother just last year, um, the beginning of the year, 2021, and, you know, she lived, oh God, late nineties, um, which was great. But, you know, her love of her life, my grandfather passed away. I think it was like, uh, gosh, time goes so quickly, but it, I think it was like 15 or so years prior. And, um, you know, I have such fond memories with all four of my grandparents growing up. They were so active in the lives of myself, my brothers, my cousins, I don't think I would be who I was today without my grandparents. I mean, it was a little bit of a rough journey, I think, for my parents raising us, um, you know, when we were growing up, because, you know, my parents were very young, but, you know, I always had the rock of my grandparents. And without them, I I truly don't think I would be the person I am today. And you just don't realize how time goes by so quickly when you're younger. And then you get to our age, you know, and, and, and we're left and, you know, it's like, we are the ones to carry on their legacy. Mm -hmm. It's our turn now to, to, to carry that on, you know, and uh, it's, you know, I I was sad to read that and it definitely made me think of, of my grandma. So, um, you know, tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and uh, where you grew up and, you know, anything from your childhood that, uh, you can remember that perhaps shaped, you know, some of the work and the perspective that you have today. Wow. There's, there's a lot there. And I, as probably most of us, I, I'm still unpacking, um, some of it, but I, for the most part, I am really grateful for the world that I was born into. I was fortunate to be born, um, into, a you know, very traditional, classic Midwestern family. My parents are still married to this day. Um, they were they met, you know, when they were in college, and uh, I have one sister. So, like my 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 wife likes to give me a hard time that I grew up in the you know Leave It to Beaver kind of model of of family. That's sort of the mm-hmm. world that I lived in a little bit, and so I grew up in with you know, the very much the Midwestern ethics of work hard, do the right thing. A man's or woman's word is the most important thing that you have. You know, integrity was sort of a bedrock. You, you took care of community, you know, people, neighbors looked out for each other. I mean, all of that good stuff. And so there was that foundation of caring and community and sort of that is at at my heart is sort of at the, at the sort of center, I think of who I am today and, and my work. And so that is really powerful. I think, you know, the other part that probably shaped me is, you know, also as a result of growing up in that kind of family, there was a lot of things. I have nothing but amazing things really to say about my parents and any of that, Mm -hmm. but just the nature of the culture I grew up in, there was a lot of things that we didn't talk about a lot of conversations mm-hmm. that we didn't have that I think I would have loved to have had, but we just didn't have them because you didn't have those conversations about things that were taboo or difficult subjects. I also grew up in an yeah. environment that was really non-diverse. I mean, diversity, I like to say in my town where I grew up, diversity was whether you went to the Methodist, Presbyterian, or Catholic church. Like That was diversity. Mm. And so my journey to into the world and experiencing um, experiencing others and different perspectives and different places and different cultures uh, that were completely unique from my own was bumpy and and awkward and I've I've screwed things up along the way and I think all of that journey and and my desire to want to have those conversations 
I think has really been what, you know, you pair those two, those two sort of, those two realities of my childhood together, I think explains an awful lot about the stuff I try to spend my days making sense of today. Mm -hmm. And so I'm grateful for all of it. That I'm grateful to have had that experience because without it, I'm certain that I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing today. Well, let's let's go there. Um, and and in going there, you know, and, and starting with you know what you are doing today, um, I know some of what you did previous, and at least in your professional life, you know, kind of kind of guided you towards the work you're doing today. So take us on that journey a little bit, uh, maybe starting with kind of. And actually, I'll, I'll read something. Um, I'll begin by reading something that I saw on your website, which I thought was um, interesting and noteworthy, which uh, you had a passion for, um, well, your passion for fixing management today likely started with uh, your very first and very awkward supervisory job on a corn detasseling crew when you were just 12 years old. So why don't we start there? Going way back. Yeah, I could see how that was awkward at 12 <laughs> years old, but let's start there and, and dive into that a little bit and uh, take us on the journey of your professional life and, uh, you know, leading into the work that you're doing today. Sure. And honestly, you know, calling that a supervisory job was, is probably a stretch, but it was, I mean, that's what I was called and I was paid more per hour. And basically, um, basically it allowed me to kind of um, walk behind the, the, I mean, it's, it's such a terrible thing right now is 12 years old or 13, you know, 12 into 13. And, you know, it allowed me to basically, you know, spend more time talking to the girls that I thought were interesting. I mean, it was just ridiculous that they even called us that, but, <laughs> but even at that point, it's like what this, this, this supervision thing is a racket. Uh, you just get paid more for <laughs> not working as much. Uh, so that's not bad. Though, you know, huh? That's where it started. And I'm like, I, I think there's a lot of employees that probably would argue that that is, it's still a racket and that that is their perspective of it. But yeah, so I, I think I've always been fascinated from early age with human behavior and why people do what they do. And then being able to kind of bring people together to do some incredible things like seeing that happen or leading groups to do things that I didn't think were possible, even, you know, starting in high school and even before. And that flowed through with me through college and on. And so I was always interested in leadership. I was always interested in humans. Mm -hmm. And although I got sidetracked by academics because, you know, the way that we teach people how to find their career is sort of ridiculous. And so I went to school to be pre-med and studied a bunch of biology and chemistry and then realized like, I don't like being around sick people. Like they're whiny and they can, like, I, this is not good for me. I, <laughs> Especially I'm, an, me. I'm empath, you know? So I take on all of that. I don't, I, I don't need that in my life. Oh, yep. And so, um, so ended up with a bunch, a couple of degrees that aren't of any like direct value to me, but I left and got a job in sales because that's what, took a test at our career development office or whatever career placement office that said I would be good in sales. And I thought I, as good as anything else, I'll go learn business. And so I got a job selling. And ultimately what happened is that sales job ultimately led me to the world of recruiting, headhunting. Mm -hmm. And along the way, every place I worked was seemed to be dysfunctional the people that were managing me, I, I did, none of it made sense to me. I'm like this, like it, just, it was all awkward. It was unhelpful. It was, I kept getting put into weird situations that didn't seem to be at my benefit. They were at somebody else's benefit. I didn't understand why they made decisions. And so I was just frustrated over and over and over. And finally I ended up in recruiting and I, so I'm recruiting for organizations, all these different clients that I ultimately had, and I'm trying to find them people. And I'm realizing every place is screwed up, like almost mm. all the places. The, the reason they're backfilling a job is because a person left a bad manager. Now I'm having to go find someone who hopefully can tolerate that bad manager for a longer period of time to continue doing the job. But we're not going to actually fix the issue that caused it in the first place. Right. And I think that's where the light bulb started going on for me was at that moment. And so from there, I would say I, I jumped, I got into corporate HR. I spent 10 years in corporate HR because I wanted to understand kind of how the sausage was made. And I also 
I, in hindsight, I describe it as my Jane Goodall experience. I had to go into the habitat and live, you know, live mm. in it, understand how <laughs> yep. corporate America works. Observe, take notes. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so I got to do a lot of amazing things there and really started to, that's where my passion opened up around trying to really understand what was going on, the relationship between people and work, people and their jobs. And that all led back to sort of the vital role that managers play um, in that, an outsized role. And so, you know, know, fast forward to today, I've been through some other some other stops along that journey, but really it's all been towards the end of, you know, work sucks for a lot of people. It, 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 mm-hmm. It's painful. It's a necessary evil. It's, it's a burden. It hurts their well-being, and it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, it should not be that way. And so there was a point in there where I decided I was going to try to fix it, or I was going to be part of the solution. And so I've been on this, I've been on that quest for the last 15 or 20 years. So what was that like when you started? I mean, you would um, had the Jane Goodall experience. Mm-hmm. You had your observations. Where where did this new journey start for you? What were you, you know, what role did you put yourself into and, and what were you trying to learn and achieve and, uh, and, you know, change? Well, I think what was happening, what happened along the way actually was I was, while I was doing that work, this crazy world of blogging came came into existence. And so I started seeing some people blogging and people writing and some things. And so at some point I thought, this makes sense to me. I'll start blogging. I'll start writing and just sharing, you know, sharing some of the things that I'm observing, some of the things that I think could be done. I was working my thoughts out um, through writing and sharing that with the world. And it was a good place to kind of outlet my ideas. I had so many ideas that it was not healthy for my teams. And so it was a way to kind of outlet my ideas, outlet, outlet my frustrations without getting in trouble at work. And I think that, that was part of it. The other thing that happened along the way is I had developed kind of an interest in through some volunteerism or whatever, I had been asked to do some speaking, to speak in front of some groups. Mm-hmm. And it woke up a part of me that I had forgotten about, which you know, I was a drama geek in high school and won awards and speech and all of this. And so I'm like, boy, this feels good. I like this. And then I was able to kind of marry those two together along the way where in, and I remember in 2000, probably around 2001 or two, mm-hmm. so about 20 years ago now, I had a conference reach out to me purely based on the title that I had posted on LinkedIn and matched their conference name. It was a talent acquisition conference or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, they invited me to speak. And I was like, and they're like, we'll pay your way. You can attend the con, Or maybe, they, I don't know, maybe they just said you can attend the conference for free even. And I was like, okay, well, I get to speak and I get to attend the conference for free. Super win. And so I did that. And that was where it all kind of unlocked for me. You know, I went down, just shared what the work that we were doing and how we were doing it. And the feedback was amazing. And that kind of set me on a path where it's like, I'm really good at telling these stories. I'm really, I'm good at teaching and sharing insights. I'm good at, and then over time I began to realize that I had a talent for um, helping people understand kind of the complexities of what was making this not work and helping them find their way through it to a better way. And so that led to more writing and the writing the books and the speaking and all of that. And eventually had to make that my full-time job as opposed to a side hustle. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good problem to have. Um, so I'm curious, you know, what were some of the observations that you were making? What were some of these insights and, and things that you were writing and speaking about? What Talk to us a little bit about, uh, you know, yeah, I guess really just those observations that you were recording. Well, I think there was two buckets that they fell into broadly. One was, you know, here I am, I'm an HR executive. I mean, I started in a director role and then I moved up to kind of a head of HR um, before I left. And everywhere I went, that was across three organizations, I was appalled by how terrible the HR processes were. Like they just, and, and not only how terrible they were, but they were inhumane in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I can go back and find you you know, find you things I wrote about how 
the the performance appraisal was an inhumane process long before that became sort of a popular thing to say in the rest of the I mean long ago so I was railing against these these stupid systems that we had in place that were actually making work worse for people mm-hmm. and then the other side of it was I think about the interactions you know manage manager leader interactions and just how badly we messed things up often at work and it was simple you know the and, and it was just because we forgot that there were human beings on both sides of this conversation we're about to have or this process we're about to have like this is this is another human being and they're they've they've got feelings and if you criticize them it's going to hurt their feelings and they're going to get defensive mm-hmm. and that's probably not going to probably not going to end well so do you really think you need to be criticizing them all the time or you know, if you wouldn't talk to your your mom that way or your spouse or your best friend that way, why do you think it's okay to talk to someone like that at work? You know, those kinds of things jumped out at me. And then there was also some beautiful moments. You know, I was just actually reflecting on this really, this moment in my career that was sort of a, I think, an inflection point, honestly. I remember I had a this woman that ended up being my the best boss I've ever had, but Early on, when I was hired, I was a, I had been an entrepreneur for most of my career, um, mm-hmm. or working as a sale in sales or being an entrepreneur, which makes me like really hard to manage. Like trying to you know write a write a bronco <laughs> without a saddle, right? Uh, when I came in, I was a bull in a china shop. Whatever analogy you want to mm-hmm. use there, but, um, and so, but I knew how to get things done, right? That is just sales is what's the fastest way to the sale? What's the fastest right. way to close the deal? And so I was getting a ton of stuff done. My team, I had to turn around, I had a team that I had to turn around, was doing all this stuff well, but I was creating all kinds of chaos with my peers. My peers did not like me. I was making them uncomfortable. The The pace at which I was doing my work and the pace at which I was engaging and moving throughout the organization made them really uncomfortable. They did not like it. I was upsetting mm. the status quo. And so they were constantly complaining to my boss. So every one-on-one, like, well, you know, this person's complaining or that person's complaining. And my boss keeps like giving me this feedback. And I remember this day distinctly. We were sitting there and having this conversation. I mean, my, and it was miserable. I hated my one-on-ones because I knew this was coming. And I'm like, I'm doing my job. Everybody loves the out, the outcome. My, the, our, my internal customers are happy. Mm-hmm. And yet my peers are are the ones like making everybody miserable and i finally said to her i'm like what what is i'm like what's more important like is is making progress more important or keeping my peers comfortable and more important like what what is it because i'm confused i don't know Mm -hmm. and the conversation we had after that question changed everything right because Mm. her job got better my job got better Everything changed because she like it. It changed a a perspective, and and she's like, you know what, you're right. Like we need to, we need, I need to show up differently. Now she also gave me some coaching because I was not being a great teammate to my peers, and so I'm like, I can mm-hmm. live with that. I can be a better teammate, but I'm not okay with like play down to make them more comfortable. It doesn't work for me, and so she's like, totally. I get that. I can I can fix that. Anyway, we had this conversation changed everything. That's the conversation that we needed to have. And I realized yeah. how often it is that managers and leaders aren't getting to the conversation that really, really matters. And it's hurting their relationship with that person. It's hurting their performance. It's hurting their team's performance. And so I got really interested in how do we get people to the conversations that matter more often and more quickly at work? Because that's where the real breakthroughs are. That's what really matters. So I want to stay there a little bit because that's super, that's a very interesting point that you raised. So number one, um, I'm curious your perspective on why you think it takes organizations so long to get there. What What's it? What's in place, maybe just historically traditional business model that, in your perspective, that, you know, that causes organizations to take that long to really recognize where the communication needs to be? And then secondly... Um, you know, what are some, what does that communication look like? How can, how can that get injected? You know, I know this is the work that you do today. So talk to our audience a little bit about how they can, in their own 
organizations, you know, get to that, that level of communication better and quicker. Sure. Well, the reason it doesn't happen is because of a legacy of management that is built around really thinking of thinking of their job as enforcing a contract with the employee, right? My job as a manager is to make sure you deliver on what we're paying you for at a base level. Mm-hmm. And then HR has trained, um, and I hate to I hate to beat up on HR. It's not their fault. It's a legacy they in, they, <laughs> they inherited, and they're doing. You know, they have good intentions, but. We have for decades told managers that you need like stay out of your employees' personal lives, right? You don't be friends with your employees. You don't get involved mm-hmm. in that. You're not a counselor. You're not a whatever. If your employee has an issue, you send them to us. We have people to handle that. And so the the manager was really, you know, it was like running a, a room full of machines, right? That's throughput, productivity, efficiency. That's what we wanted. And so that's why... That's the legacy we have. That's how most managers have been trained. And so it doesn't even make any mm-hmm. sense to have some of these conversations. It just, there's that. And I think the, the reality that most people are conflict avoidant and really don't know how to have good, healthy conflict. And so when you ask real questions that elicit real answers, sometimes you're not going to like the answers you hear and you've got to be okay in, in having that conversation because that's the conversation that matters the most. And so, mm-hmm. so that's why it doesn't happen. I think, I think the gift of the experience of the last two years is we've learned that no longer, this is no longer a relevant model, right? Through the pandemic, if you're not able to have a conversation with your employees about what's going on beyond work, mm-hmm. Your your team was struggling. You probably lost people. They're underperforming. You're you know they're miserable. Yeah, you don't know what's going on because you know when people got sent home or people are working in different circumstances, stress was dialed up. They felt unsafe. All of these things. If you can't sit down and have a conversation with them about that kind of stuff, we know what kind of it, it's had terrible impact for people. It's had. It's killed team performance. It's killed morale. It's caused people to quit and leave the workforce entirely. And so we know we have to be more involved. We have to be able to have a conversation with people about um, about things that are difficult, that are uncomfortable. And so the way, what I teach is that there is, there's one technique, one tool that is the most effective way to do this. And it's the check-in. The check-in, when done correctly, if you're doing, if you're checking in with your people the right way, often it it gives the opportunity for that employee to have the conversation with you that needs to happen the most. And the, the most simplest way that I I teach this is, well, let, let me back up. And say people check in, right? There are people who will say, well, I'm already checking in. It's like. Mm-hmm. That's a good start. I'm glad you're putting the time and energy in it. But a lot of times when we check in, we say something like, Adam, how are you? Mm-hmm. Right? And I did it at the beginning of the of the webcast today. And you said, mm-hmm. I'm well. On, off we went. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I know about your well-being? As a result of that answer, I know nothing. I know that you were ready to get into the podcast. And so we're going to keep moving. And it wasn't fair for me to ask you that question probably at that time. But that is... That is what we usually get. You ask somebody how they are, they say, fine, busy, whatever. Maybe you get a eh once in a while, but that's a really honest response. But even then, what do you really know? You know virtually nothing. And generally it's, I know you don't really care, so I'm just going to give you the short answer and we're off to the next thing. That's how it goes. Mm -hmm. Here's the change. Super simple. It is when you check in with someone, you can say, Adam, how are you today? Scale from one to 10, 10 being I couldn't be better, one being couldn't be worse. Where are you at? Mm-hmm. Adam, how are you today? One to 10. Mm, truthfully, I'm probably about a five. Five. So tell me about that. What's on the, like, what's working? What's what's on the positive side of that? Well, on the positive side on that, um, I'm, I'm having the opportunity to speak with you today, yeah. which is great. And, um, you know, my business, we've done a lot of stuff to turn some things around that were challenging in Q1. And so I'm really encouraged by that. And so those are, those are the, and my daughter is graduating from college in San Francisco next mm-hmm. week. Um, so 
about to head out of town up to the Bay Area. And so that's exciting. That's amazing. That's amazing. So that, that all sounds really good. So tell me about what's on the other side of that. What's, what's the gap between the five and 10? What would move you towards an eight or a nine? What's holding that back? Yeah. So truthfully, like yesterday was a challenging day. Um, my, my wife went to go um, take this class that she wanted to do, and uh, which was fine. And I'm super happy to support her. Um, but it meant, you know, I had basically back to back to back to back meetings all day yesterday. And then at five o'clock, had to take the kids to their swim lesson and then came back and the dog was nuts and feeding the kids, bathing the kids, playing with the kids. And and then my wife came home and, and she she wasn't feeling well and, and she was throwing up. So um, so that's, Ugh. you know. That, that is that, not that, a good day. That impacted the score for I, me. I can I can feel that. I can feel it over here. So, so that, that so I thank you for sharing. But you see how same question that conversation opened up. If I was your manager, I would follow up then with some additional questions. Probably I would say, mm-hmm. you know, that's uh, it sounds rough. It sounds like you got a lot going on. Is there anything that I could do to help? Mm-hmm. And you you know. And you might say, well, I don't know. It's like, well, is there anything, is there anything like with your schedule? Is there any meetings that I could take off your, your plate or something that would be helpful? Cause it sounds like you've, you probably could use the extra time and you might say, yeah, that'd be super helpful. But you can see like that. What did that take? 15, you know, mm-hmm. took us all of a couple of minutes and we went right to the thing that was most like biggest the biggest issue right in front of you especially from a well-being perspective which is what that was about and and this is the thing that is the the I think the light bulb for a lot of managers and leaders is that the fact that you've got all the stuff going on with the kids and the dog and then your wife's coming home and she's sick and now you've got that going on which means you're carrying this extra burden did that have an impact on your work today mhm oh yeah of course Right, because you've got all this stuff to deal with and you're thinking about it, you're worried about your wife, you got stuff to deal with the kids, probably you had to move around the schedule. I'm glad we were still mm-hmm. able to pull this off. So thank you for that. But mm-hmm. this is the this is the the magic of changing up that check-in just a little bit. Because when you add that one to ten, it's all it takes. One to ten. Yeah. Suddenly now you're telling me a lot of information. If you had said I'm a nine I would have been like, that is amazing. I don't think I'm at a nine. So can you like, tell me like what, give me some highlights, like what's going on in your life. And you would have went on about your daughter and whatever. And I'd be like, that is fantastic. I'd ask you questions. Now we're building connection. I'm learning about you and what you're passionate about. Right. I wouldn't have known anything about your daughter had I not asked the check-in question. Now I know a little bit more about you than I did before asking that question. If you're at a two. Exactly. That's a different thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, man, that is that's uh, that is rough. That's a bummer, man. Is there anything going on that you're comfortable talking about? And then th- the key is when you ask that follow-up question, is just ask it and and then shut up and mm-hmm. listen exactly, and just let people give it to you. And then, like I said, the next step, the key, the money is then, what can I do to support you? Like, how can I help, or would this be helpful to you? And then like, that's, that's, you just learned where they at. You got to the, probably the most important thing you needed to know that day. You demonstrated compassion by listening, demonstrating care and showing support. And then you can get on to whatever the rest of that conversation is. And that can all happen in five minutes, um, especially once people learn to trust you. And so I think the check-in is it's by far the most powerful thing you can master if you really, really want to move the needle on this. And what I'll say is that the biggest challenge, back to your first question, I think the biggest challenge behind why people struggle with this often is they're like, well, I'm not sure what to say if someone says, you know, I have an issue. If I'm a two and I'm mm-hmm. struggling with depression, what do right. I say? And the simplest thing that I will offer up is what would you say if it was your best friend on the other side of that conversation? Mm-hmm. And what would you say to them? And they oftentimes, in fact, I had somebody ask me this just the other day and he said this, he, he said, well, what if you check in and they say, 
Like they reveal that they have whatever, they're struggling in their marriage, right? And you're their manager. Like, what are you supposed to, but I'm like, well, what would you do if it was your, if it was your best friend? And he's thought about it and he's like, well, I'd ask if I could, if there was something I could do, or if there's anything I could do to help, I would certainly offer that up. Or if he was wrestling, looking for something or wrestling with like, I need to find a counselor. It's like, well, would it help if I, I can ask around and see if I can find you some resources or do some research. You'd offer to help. Mm -hmm. Like, you don't have to solve it. You don't have to be the solution. Right. The key is that you cared. You list. You asked. You listened. You cared, and you're offering some kind of help and support. That's what compassion in action looks like. And when you start doing this regularly, you transform your team. Yeah, and so happy that you raised that point um, on asking and especially the listening because I think as managers we really historically have had a hard time doing that. Um, and yeah, exactly to your point, it's like if somebody reveals something, um, knowing that, yeah, the, the answer is not to solve the problem. People aren't coming to you to solve their problem. They're just looking to make that connection and and to know that they're understood a little bit. And uh, another thing I, I read on your your website, and I you know it's right on point with what you're talking about right now, is... You know, really to unlock that that compassion, you need to give managers permission to enter into this different kind of relationship with their with their staff um, where they, you know, deeply care about people. And, you know, historically, and you even touched on it before, you know, there was this traditional idea that as a manager, you shouldn't be friends with your employees. You shouldn't get too connected personally to what's going on in their lives. Such a I don't know. I I just look here, May 13th, 2022. It just doesn't relate anymore. It doesn't. And it's, and it, it doesn't, it never did. It never did. But we were trapped in systems or we were kind of trapped in some, some best practices of the past that had worked to some extent. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the management practices of the past were created when employees didn't have a lot of choice in the matter. You know, you mm-hmm. showed up and you needed the job and and that was kind of, and the expectations were fairly low and everybody you knew was being treated the same way at work, so you just did it and you took it. It wasn't that it was optimally working well, it just that was the standard. That's how we built it and and I think today we just are in an entirely different world. And it's not even so much just about, you know, sometimes you get talking about this and it can sound like a kumbaya kind of message of, well, we're just all about, you know, what are we, what are we running here? We're just running a place to make employees happy and feel good. It's like, well, if you understand how creativity works, if you understand how innovation works, if you understand how you know, a lot of the work that we depend on today in a lot of modern jobs depend on unleashing human ingenuity and human creativity and the ability to problem solve and all of those things. And you can pretend like it's not true, but all of that is attached to not only our individual well-being, Right, the degree to which we are physically and mentally and otherwise healthy, but it's also, I mean, our emotional health, um, our our emotional energy plays an enormous role in that. And so, when we're not feeling cared for, and we have decades of employee engagement research that even says this, when we don't feel valued or cared for, appreciated, those things at work. We aren't as engaged, which means we don't do mm-hmm. as high a quality. We don't perform as well. We're not as loyal, and we're less likely to stay with you. Mm-hmm. Like we, we, the data is there, so this isn't a new thing. I think it's just we've had this jolt to the system, and I think we've also learned that it's okay. You know, when we wade into you know through the pandemic, we were forced into a lot of managers had to have conversations they'd never had before right. with people that they never wanted to have, but they were I think surprised by like wow okay this this was okay and when you get into that kind of relationship and you build deeper trust you build deeper connection it makes everything at work easier not harder it gets easier to talk about the hard things it gets easier if you know, you need to address a difficult 
topic, when you have a mm-hmm. good relationship with someone and they trust that you have, you're interested in them, you care about them, you have their best interest in mind, it actually is easier to give feedback. It's easier to coach. You know, my wife gives me feedback all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't worry about it. It doesn't get me bent out of shape because I know that our relationship is solid. Like nothing is at risk. She is only giving me this feedback because it's in my best interest. Mm-hmm. And that same thing can be true at work, but you got to build the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I know about that sort of feedback. I also get it all the time. <laughs> it's helpful. It's helpful. Um, super helpful. Um, you know, just to touch on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there's been part of me in the past that, you know, I've been reactionary to it, but I, I really have been working like in an explicit way to to understand that it's coming from a place of empathy where it's like, hey, you know, there, I'm not perfect. There, there's things I could be doing better, but I'm glad you touched on that because this is kind of a segue that I wanted to to make going to the pandemic. And I understand you had, you know, some experience with with some pretty significant burnout um, during 2020, um, during the pandemic. And you kind of credited, I don't know if it was a friend of yours or a boss, but somebody who just kind of, you know, checked in and just kind of see how you're doing. And, and, and also, um, I remember reading, you had made that recognition that, yeah, yeah, you were burned out. Things Mm -hmm. weren't looking good for you, but it, you know, it required you to kind of check out for a couple of days, which was going to put a burden on your wife. And, and you were, concerned about that, but she stepped up and, and was completely okay with it. So tell us a little bit about that experience and, you know, how, how your friend or colleague kind of stepped up as well as your wife for you. Yeah. Again, back to the power of the check-in, you know, my, my friend was seeing or, you know, she, she was noticing, you know, which is a big part of demonstrating compassion is noticing. You have to notice that someone is struggling and she was noticing actually even from a distance that she, she's like, something is going on. Something isn't right with you. Mm -hmm. And so she scheduled a call and we got to talking and we were sharing and she said, do you have time on, she's like, do you have time on your calendar to, to take some time away? Because she had been through something similar and she's like, I think it might be helpful. She was gently nudging me. Um, based on what she was hearing me say. And that planted the seed in my mind. And so I started thinking about it and I started kind of trying to figure out what was happening. And, you know, long story, I realized like I was experiencing burnout. I had never in my life that I recall had any sort of mental health challenges. I, I mean, sure, I've been sad or lonely or, you know, whatever at different times, just regular emotions, mm-hmm. but never anything like this where I didn't understand really what was happening. Um, you know, my emotions were sort of flattening out. I wasn't feeling joy. I wasn't feeling much of anything and it was scary. Mm-hmm. And so I finally, I said, I, you're right. I said to my wife, I said, I think like, I think I need to like go retreat for a few days and try to try to work through this, figure out what, you know, just have some time. Mm-hmm. And she was like, yes, yes. Because, I mean, she was the one, I mean, she's probably the bear in the brunt of it. She knew I was struggling right. for a while, but you know how hard it is to the people you're closest to, too. They don't, they often don't want to hear it from us. It's harder to be the one that says, are you okay? Um, forcefully enough that it sort of gets their attention. And so when I said, yeah, I, so I, I took three or four days, I think it was four days and, um, went away and thankfully I was in a place where, and I've had enough, you know, I had enough tools and support that I knew at least a good place to start to try to put myself back together. And fortunately, um, it was really helpful. And then I had to change some habits in a lasting way to make sure that I stayed Mm -hmm. in a good place when I came back. But it was that support and those check-ins, my wife had been checking in with me, but I don't know that I knew even, I don't think I even knew how to be, I mean, that's the thing about mental health, right? Sometimes you don't realize it's happening until it's, it's a, it's a slow burn. And mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know that I even knew enough to to tell her. And so it was, it was a pretty, 
it was it was eye opening. I mean, it was an amazing experience because for me, it was the first time I think I really truly had a deeper sense of understanding for the complexities of mental health and why it was so important, such a big deal. I mean, I think I intuitively, I understood it at a intellectual level, but I don't think I ever really Mm -hmm. got it until going through that. And it certainly created a a different level of compassion and understanding for me. You know, because I've experienced definitely the same thing. And, you know, for me, what I can recall is, I have and I continue to have, although I recognize it now and I'm working towards it, but a really difficult time when I know I'm like yesterday at the end of the day, I was at zero percent, like my my health meter. I was done and I have a really hard time asking for a break Mm. because I feel guilty about it and perhaps a little bit shameful that I that I got to that place where I let myself get that low. Um, You know, it's. Especially, you know, when you're married, you have children, you've got so many obligations. I think a lot of people have a, a real difficult time saying, hey, I need to I need to take a break. I know this is going to put more of a burden on you. Is this OK? You know, why? Why do you think it's so hard for us sometimes to ask for help when we need it? There's a lot of reasons, I think, for that. I think. Rather than trying to unpack why, I mean, what I have found to be more helpful is to reframe the situation because, you know, from your situ, from, from your point of view in that situation, and I would say sort of my situation was similar. Um, number one is you're, when we're operating like that. So when I was in burnout, you know, my ability to support and contribute to the family dynamic here was diminished. Mm-hmm. which meant that my wife was having to carry a heavier load. She wasn't saying that to me, but you know, I'm, if I'm only operating at 40%, that means she's got to make up that gap. And so she's making that up. And so me not asking for help or not sort of doing something to address that is actually creating a burden on her. It wasn't fair to my kids, right? Because they're mm-hmm. missing out. I can't be the dad I want to be for them if I'm not caring for myself. And so that's one of the things that... I think for me, I've had to shift. And I mean, the, the best analog for that, it's similar to how I try to help managers think about dealing with people on their teams who might be, who have become sort of behavioral challenges or have become toxic or are underperforming. A lot of times managers will kind of avoid it. They, you know, they don't want to deal with the conflict or they just try to overlook it and they kind of let it go on and they're using the hope strategy, hoping they'll just get better, or hoping they'll wake up one day and things will be improved because they, they don't want to make it, you know, they, they've bought into a narrative like I don't, you know, this, this employee is going to get even more upset if I address this. Mm-hmm. But what they're missing is that there's an entire team around them that are suffering because they're not addressing the issue that's right in front of them. When you don't address that employee, it creates a burden. The other team, the people around have to deal with, they have to live with that attitude or toxicity. They have to pick up the slack usually that they're leaving behind when that employee isn't performing. And so it's like, you're not addressing the performance issue with the employee only for the employee. You're addressing that for the rest of the team. You're protecting the rest of the team. And so I think that's the same mindset that I've I've. I've shared and I think about for myself and I'm no mental health expert at all, but I think about like, if I'm not caring for myself, then that means the people around me are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. I can't give to them what they should deserve and expect of me. And so that makes it feel less selfish. This isn't a selfish thing. I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them. And the most caring thing I can do for them is to take care of myself so that I can be my best to take care of them, to do the things they need of me. And that's true in all areas. So I, so I don't know why people, I know there's a lot of reasons people don't ask for help, but I found that making that mental switch, that this isn't selfish, it's actually the complete opposite of that when you make a decision to prioritize your, your own self-care and your own health. Yeah. I mean, and, and like you just said, it demonstrates compassion. Um, when you demonstrate that compassion outward, it, it's also demonstrating that compassion inward as well. I want to switch gears for a little bit um, and uh, talk about your book, Unlocking High Performance. I see it there on the shelf behind you. Uh, t- 
tell us about the book. Um, you know, where the idea came from, when was it published and, uh, you know, what, what you focused on. Yeah. So the book has now been out to be honest. It feels like, I think it's four years now. Um, I, it, you know, in COVID time, it feels like a hundred years ago. And then again, it feels like yesterday. So I don't, I don't even have a sense of time and space anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the book, this book is actually a, you know, it's sort of my opus, I guess, based on what I've learned through the last 20 years of trying to unlock this, this puzzle of how do we create a more human workplace that, mm-hmm. that supports employees being able to perform at their best while at the same time creating an experience that acknowledges that organizations are made of these beautiful, complex, messy human beings. And how do we create a more human organization for them? Because when you do that, that's when you can really unlock their best. That's when they will give you their best and bring their best. And so that's really what the book is about. It's about um, how to create a performance management system Mm -hmm. that is rooted in understanding humans so that you can get really dialed in on what their core needs are and how to support them effectively so that they can then do their best on behalf of, of your organization and your customers. Yeah. Um, and I also saw, and unfortunately this episode, when it gets published, it will be after the fact, um, so, you know, unfortunately, we, we don't have the ability to promote it, but you are presenting or speaking at Work Human Live next week, I understand, in Atlanta, leading a session on compassion, a new core competency of management. So tell us about that and, you know, what you're going to be speaking about. What are some of the concepts that you're going to be presenting on? Sure. Well, actually, we've covered a fair amount of, of that today. We've already talked a little bit about... Uh, about compassion. And we've talked about the best tool of compassion, which is the check-in. And that's going to be a lot of what I'm going to talk about. And the gist of that session is, or sort of the root of that session and why compassion is a management competency is that in this world, and we've hinted at this, but I'll say it directly now, well-being is this, this, this idea, this, this this reality of individual well-being is something that we've been overlooking for forever at work for the most part. Organizations might have had a wellness program sort of tucked away where they encourage people to stop smoking and eat more broccoli and get more steps. But I'm talking about something much bigger, which is well-being is the science of human thriving. It's understanding that you know what is it? We have core needs as human beings that when they are met, that we can do our best and be at our best and give our best. And when they are unmet, then we are um, diminished. We are somehow, you know, so you can think about there's lots of different models out there, physical, emotional, spiritual, um, relational, whatever. You can find all sorts of models that unpack it in different ways. But the at the heart of it is the same thing, that we have core needs as humans that need to be met. And so when we, when those needs are unmet or when those needs are challenged... What happens is your what you described your health battery, which is exactly kind of how I talk about it, your well-being battery mm-hmm. is diminished. And when that well-being battery is diminished, your capacity to perform is diminished. Mm-hmm. You show up in the morning, if you showed up, if you were still this morning at 0% when you rolled into work, Adam, you're, I mean, you might as well write off the day. I've had days like that, right? It's just the work's not going to be good. It's not going to be inspired. It's going to take you forever to get work done. Just not good. doesn't matter how great your work experience or your colleagues are or anything else. If your battery's dead, it doesn't matter. And the, and the problem is we live in a world where people's well-being is under assault. Totally. Right? We have, I talked to a guy this morning who's dealing with his his father's at end of life, and so they're dealing with that. His ninety something year old mother in law who has Alzheimer's is moving in his house with he and his wife. He's like, I I'm not able to give much energy to anything else right now. Yeah, and that is the reality. And if if we don't as organizations understand that that's the reality, everybody has their own reality of what that looks like. If we don't start helping our employees manage those things, giving them tools and support 
to manage their well-being, then when they show up to work, they just got not much to give us. They, I mean, they're diminished. And so if you want to unlock the greatest opportunity you have to improve performance at work, it's to really get serious about well-being. And the way you do that is teach your managers to be compassionate. And the, the, the best way to do that most effective is to teach them how to check in, like we just talked about. Teach them how to check in early and often and regularly, and that will start moving the needle right away. Thank you for that. Um, there's there's one last question I want to ask you, which is about um, the importance of vulnerability in leadership. Mm. So can you talk to us a little bit about that relationship between management and and leadership and why it's important to to show that vulnerability where I think the traditional business model has really not promoted that concept? Sadly. Sadly, one of the legacies that men have left on work, I think, as a as a general rule, um, because of our weird weirdness with vulnerability um, culturally. But I think I always have to go to when you talk about vulnerability, you always have to go to you know the the expert um, Brene Brown, mm-hmm. and I know Brene. You know, I I'll never forget when reading about how you know she talked about that you know, courage and vulnerability are two sides of the same coin. And I've always found that to be so interesting because we value courage and we promote courage and we, we celebrate courage. But the truth is you can't demonstrate courage without vulnerability. And so one of the pathways to being more courageous is to be willing to show greater vulnerability. And the the thing from my own experience, and I am no expert on vulnerability, I, I um, just know from my own experience and from the, the managers and leaders I've worked with over the years is that people are so frightened of vulnerability and yet vulnerability is what draws people to you. It Vulnerability is when the people that you lead, the people you manage can start to relate to you. It's when they start to recognize their their struggles and their path in you. Mm-hmm. And it allows them to start opening up and connecting to you differently. And if we're going to be able to support employees in this new world of work the way that we want to, it's going to require vulnerability. If you're going to learn to demonstrate compassion, if you can add vulnerability onto that, so when someone shares something you know with you that they're struggling with and then you can say you know I I feel you I've I've been through something similarly and you can share your own experience and they can connect and relate and feel not alone in the thing they're struggling mm-hmm. with that is an incredibly powerful way to to lift people up and so the the advice I always offer to managers and um leaders on vulnerability is that if if that's uncomfortable to you start with baby steps Mm-hmm. Start with little things. Start with a little self-disclosure about, you know, stuff that feels safe, safer to reveal. Start with baby steps and just work into it, and let the results show. You know, reveal themselves. Your people will be drawn to you when you start to do it. So, yep. um, incredibly powerful. So, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, I mean, I just find it so interesting that I think traditionally vulnerability has been looked at as a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but really when you think about it it demonstrates such incredible strength it does so yeah so jason so tell us where um tell our audience where people can find out more about you and get connected sure the well there's several places if you can spell my name you can you'll be able to find me um my last name Lortzen is L A U R I T S E N. So if you put Jason Lortzen into the Googles, you'll find lots of places. One of the places is my website, which is just jasonlortzen.com. Um, you can reach out directly to me via email, jason at jasonlortzen.com, or I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. So if you want to, in fact, I think Adam, that's where you, you and I connected. And so mm-hmm. um, find me. I love hearing from people, love connecting. If you have questions or are looking for resources, please reach out. Well, I, I can't tell you how enjoyable this conversation's been. I learned a lot. Um, you know, I definitely picked up, uh, you know, the check-in is, is so powerful and, and, uh, for sure I'm going to be, you know, one of the things is I I've kind of delegated the check-in to my managers to, you know, checking in with their team and have completely now recognized, I mean, I should, I need to be doing that too. I need to be, 
you know, reaching out and, and just seeing how everybody's doing. That's kind of my role as a leader. So thank you for that tidbit um, and for being my guest here today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Really enjoyed it. Jason Loritzen is transforming management as a keynote speaker, trainer, and author. He liberates managers from outdated and inhumane practices so they can cultivate human potential at work and improve people's lives. His experience ranges from startup CEO to Fortune 1000 executive. He also spent several years leading the Best Places to Work program for an HR technology company where he gained deep insight into some of the best workplaces in the world. Jason is the author of two books, Unlocking High Performance, How to Use Performance Management to Engage and Empower Employees to Reach Their Full Potential, and Social Gravity, Harnessing the Natural Laws of Relationships. You can read more about Jason on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a story to share about making a difference in the lives of people you lead, or if you want to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more. 